Tonight we're going to look in James 1, and we're going to go through verses 2 through 8, and then we're going to add some more to it and expand upon this. And what specifically we're looking at tonight is the endurance of faith. The endurance of faith. And how the Scriptures help us, how God's Word helps us, and how our faith is what gives us great strength through hard times and trials and tribulations. And I think that you'll find great value in this. I was looking at it and studying it this week, and I thought, you know, this is, it just, it just stood out to me. I thought, well, everything in James I could go on and teach and preach through again. It's such a practical book in helping us and instructing us. So I started at the very beginning, and I thought, do we need to hear this? And we definitely do. So I asked the question tonight, do you find joy do you find joy in your trials? I would have to say most of the time, I have not, and that would be wrong. And Jesus says that we are to rejoice and take joy when we're even persecuted. But we have trials in our life. And the word here for trials includes tribulations, it includes hardships, it includes temptations, because later on it uses the same Greek word and talks about temptations. I'm going I'm to reference that as well tonight to give a little bit more fullness to what we're looking at here. And I thought this is a fascinating thing because usually when I feel like I'm being tempted, when I'm having trials, when things seem tough, I, I feel like I allow those things to press me down, to bear on me, to sit on my shoulders. And so when I read this instruction we're about to read right here, it is very challenging because it, it, it takes time to contemplate. And to think about this, how can I take joy right now with all this junk going on and the stuff that's going on, the things that are in front of me that, yes, I trust in God to handle them, but I wouldn't say I take joy in them. So I'm challenged by what we're going to read here. I usually think things like this, well, how, how miserable am I in this situation? You know, I, and I'll pray to God and I'll say, God, I pray to you all the time and I talk to you about this and I talk to you about that. And Lord, what's going to happen? What's next? Why haven't I seen anything change yet? I know God is there and I trust that he's going to bring the answers. And sometimes I guess I need to do what the psalmists often do and just let it out. Because these things, sometimes it feels... When's the end of it coming? Why, why, do, why is there... I wouldn't say it's hopeless. But you, you know, you get with these things and you endure them. And you just want them to come to an end. You want to see good things on the other side of it. And yet, here we have instruction from James telling us to take joy in it. So what do you do? This. Alright, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy. And you know what it says in Greek? It says count it all joy. That's what it says in Greek. It says consider it all joy. Depending on your translation, I like consider. All joy too. It's emphatic there in the text. It's not a little bit of joy. You take all joy. And what? And you might think the next thing's going to be and all the wonderful things that are happening that you're, you're not seeing which that's a part of this, but look at what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
So when I have temptations, when I have trials, when I have tribulations, I, gotta, I need to count it all joy. How can I do that? Well, that's going to take some time and prayer and thought to do that, doesn't it? Some contemplation about what God wants me to do there. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The Greek word for steadfast here means that you endure under heat. It's an endurance. So as I'm thinking about verse 3, for you know that there's good that comes from these trials and temptations. What the, and, and that's a very curious way to address them. My faith is going to be strengthened. It's going to produce endurance in me and steadfastness that I'm not going to be moved. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness, let this endurance have its full effect. It needs to take a full effect on you and change you. He says that you may be perfect and complete. Wait a minute. Perfect and complete. There's a perfecting that goes on here. There's a completing of my faith that goes on when I am un undergoing trials and hardships. Yes. And in that, I'm, I'm going to take joy in. Yes. In fact, I need to go through these things, and it says lacking in nothing. So that I am lacking in nothing. So that I am made complete. And, and God will work all things for good. We know these from other scriptures. You can go to Romans 5 as well. It tells us that through the hardships and trials that they develop character in us. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 8. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I've been praying this prayer a lot lately, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom with this. Give me wisdom from that. I'm praying for it all the time. And I know this, the Lord gives me wisdom. Not always in my time in the way that I want it to. Sometimes I'll pray that prayer and say, God, give me wisdom to help me in this trial and temptation. And then I think, but don't make it worse so that I have to come to that wisdom. But sometimes that happens, and I endure it, and my faith is strengthened. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Why? This is why. Who gives generously to all without reproach. God's not going to say, oh, you're so foolish, you should have already had the wisdom and figured it out yourself. God doesn't respond in that way. He gives you the wisdom. There is no reproach. That's what the meaning is there. And it will be given to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that promise of God that when you ask for wisdom, He's going to give it to you? I do. Well, I have to remind myself sometimes that I believe it because I often forget it. But I read that scripture and I think about it. That I need to ask God for wisdom. And that brings us to the next part, verse 6. He says, but let him ask in faith. What kind of faith? I trust in God and I trust his promises and I trust that he will give to me generously wisdom when I ask for it. I believe it. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts, and this is the description of people today who doubt God, or maybe they believe in God, but they doubt his promises. What are they like? When you doubt God's promises, you're going to find that when trials and tribulations come along, that you're like a wave in the sea being flipped about and tossed in a storm. You've ever, you've ever gone to the ocean or you've been on a stirred up lake and you've seen the way the, the water moves and you can see the way that the wind affects it. I've stood on uh, the coast, on the Atlantic coast there in Jacksonville, Florida, and looked out as a hurricane was starting to come in. Yeah, I was, I guess, a little crazy in that. It wasn't that bad of a hurricane. It was just a Category 1, I think. 
But I remember sitting there and you watch the wind move the waves around and you see how powerful they are. And you, you look out there and there's nobody out there in the water. Of course, you'd be foolish to go out there. But, and I think about that and I see the power of it, but I also see this. I don't want to be like that wave that does not trust in God that's just tossed about. He says, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's, he's doubting. You, you can't be saying, I'm trusting God's promises and then doubting him when you ask for him for wisdom. Why? Because that person, well, look at verse 8. Your translation usually says double-minded. The Greek literally says he is double-souled. His soul, his life, everything is split. And what sense? In the sense that his ways are split. He's both going down the road of faith and the road of doubt at the same time when he's facing tribulation. And all he is is a wave that's tossed around. It's not a good way to live. It's a troubled one. It's when you feel the burdens of life and you don't allow Christ to help you and God to relieve you. Verse 8, he is double-minded. He's a double-souled man, unstable in all of his ways. Unstable in his ways. Trying to go down two different paths at once. When I was reading it in the original text, that's what kind of stood out to me, is going down, the way for ways right there, or the, the Greek word is going down two different roads, or multiple roads. He doesn't know what he's doing, and he's lost. And I guess... You know, just right there tonight, looking at that, there's a lot to contemplate. James has this way of, as, as he's writing, to address the subject and then come back to it. Now, I haven't mapped it out in the outline to see if he's using some kind of uh, chiasm, which is, was common when people got up and spoke in front of others back then. They weren't writing down their notes or anything. You know, preachers would go in and they would cite a number of scriptures about a certain subject they'd come to learn a lot about, or they would read a, a passage like you see Jesus doing in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and then they would expand upon it and talk about it. And in their mind, they would go, I know they didn't have the English alphabet, but they go A, B, C, and D, and then they go back through it, D, C, B, and A, and, and speaking to those who are listening to them, expanding upon the subject. So I haven't really dug into that to see if there's a further outline of this. Maybe you'll see it. But what I do notice here in James chapter 1 is how he continues to hit on this. And while it may seem like he just suddenly changes the subject, look in verses 9 and 10. So 9 and 10, he talks to the poor man and tells him that, you know, the man who's needy and lowly and humble and whatever humble state he is in, that he is to boast. But the rich man, the wealthy man, the man who has much and recognizes that, that he must rather boast in his humbling and the things that he endures. Now, why does he suddenly change to that? I think as you start to read here in the text, there's a lot of things going on within these different churches. So James is talking about a number of churches that are dispersed. And it talks about people who come into their church buildings. And I've heard people say, oh, they didn't have church buildings back then. But James 2 and verse 2, it says there in Greek, when it says a man comes into your assembly, the word assembly means synagogue, your place of gathering. And so, and it's a Greek word, not a Hebrew word, synagogue. So that place of gathering, this man comes in, and you've got a poor man that comes in, a rich man comes in. Don't show partiality and, and favor one over the other. And so he continues to emphasize these common things here. And then he says here about the wealthy man and the lowly man. He says about the wealthy man 
and his humility. He says that man needs to recognize that even as he pursues things in his life, they're all going to come to an end. He's like the flower of the grass and has a beauty for a little while, but it perishes and falls away. James constantly is reminding and humbling those who are reading and thinking about this. And he brings that up, but if you look in verse 12, he's not changing the subject here. He hasn't changed the subject. Look right here in verses 12 through 15. Actually, I'm going to do 12 through 17 because I think it fits together very nicely as as another part of our study and exposition tonight to add on to James chapter 1. So James 1, look at verses 12 through 17. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So steadfastness, there's the same Greek word. The man who is blessed, and notice the word blessed here. You probably heard this before. You remember in the, about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5? Some would say, you know, you could translate when Jesus says blessed is the poor in spirit for they, uh, and so forth, and blessed, and he goes through it. Um, he will see the kingdom of God. The word blessing there has the implication of, of happiness and joy that comes from it. It has the word joy embedded in it. I was looking up recently and thinking about, for, for instance, the Declaration of Independence, and it talks about the pursuit of happiness. Well, the word happiness there happens to do with the idea of, of happenstance. And it's the idea, and if you look up in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, the idea of happiness, just a, you know, about 200 years ago, was that uh, of blessing. When you look at the word blessing, also in the, that old Webster's Dictionary, the word blessing implies that you have received from God what gives you uh, great things and life and joy. And the same thing here with this word, if you're understanding what I'm saying here, is that the state of happiness is the state of being blessed by God. And so when I think about the word blessed here, I'm thinking about those things. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who endures under trial. And it could be the word temptation there, as you're going to see what, that's what he means. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. What's the crown of life? The blessing and confidence of what um, we have, of eternal life, which God has promised to those who love Him. Notice that as well. Not only are we talking about the endurance of faith, we're talking about those who love God. You love God, and therefore you're able to endure. He says, let no one say when he's tempted. Same word as trials, okay? You're tempted, and your trials, and your, and your tribulations, all the same. He says, no one can say I'm being tempted by God. Well, you kind of hear that today when people talk about oh god is the one doing it and it says for god cannot tempt with evil and he himself tempts no one in other words god can't do evil because he's the source of all goodness therefore he can't tempt you to do evil because that would be evil god doesn't do that he says verse 14 but each person is tempted he goes through the trials and tribulations that he does because he is lured that's what my translation says it says lured Again, the Greek word there has the idea, the the Greek word literally means you're already being dragged, present active tense. That the hook is already in your mouth, it's a fishing term. Or you're already in the net, you've already been caught in it. So verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is, he's captured, he's lured, he's been being lured in, he's being enticed by his own desire. 
Then the desire, look at verse 15, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So the temptation and the desire is there. It conceives and gives birth to sin. And then that sin, when it is fully grown, you got a depiction here, kind of a personification of sin and desire of what it turns into. The desire becomes sin and the sin grows into this monster and it becomes death. And so James says, and this is why I cannot cut off verses 16 and 17. James says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there's no variation or shadow to change. God doesn't change. He doesn't alter anything. Everything that is good, every good thing comes from God in heaven. He does not give you evil. And when He promises you wisdom in times of trials, He will give it to you. And He gives it to you generously. And so James is affirming here, don't doubt your Creator. Don't doubt God. Trust in Him. And He will give you and bless you and give you the things that you need to endure. So I'm thinking about this and I'm reading through James 1 this week. And I'm thinking, take joy in your temptations. To take all joy, to consider all joy when you're going through trials. And I fully, I don't think I fully have wrapped my mind around that, but I'm going to. I'm going to keep doing that. So I've spent a lot of time praying to God when I see these things saying, God, help me to have all joy in this situation. When times are hard, when things seem hopeless in certain areas, that I recognize there are good in other areas, God help me to have joy in all those things. And by that I have endurance of the faith, and I continue in the love of God, knowing that He gives me, and He will give me wisdom as I continue to pray for Him. And therefore, knowing who my Creator is, and knowing that all good gifts, as we just read here in James, come from Him, I have no reason to doubt Him. I put my trust in Him. And I want you to notice this. James 1 and verse 18. What we just read in 16 and 17 is that desire, when it conceives, it brings forth like desire is the mother of sin, is what you got there, right? Gives birth to sin, and then sin grows up into this hideous monster of death. So it doesn't say monster there. I'm implying what you know, sin is. But in contrast to that, it says here in verse 18 that God gives birth to us as His children. How does He do that? By the word of the truth. And so James, throughout the book, he emphasizes the importance of God's word and His truth abiding within your heart, giving you strength because you have been born a believer because of the word of the truth and you are the first fruits of His creations. God, the reason He created, you remember in Genesis? He's, when, and after each day and He's done creating it, it says it was good. And then when He created man, God says this, it is very good. Okay, The reason God has created everything and made us in the first place is because it was good. In fact, He made us because it is very good. Made in His likeness. So I'm, I'm thinking about the goodness of God's creation, but His creating is not done. 
He has made us new creations and new creatures, and we are the first fruits of His creation because the Word of God changes us. And as we go a little bit further, I'm just going to skip ahead in one of my thoughts. In James 3, James talks about the meekness of wisdom, of God's wisdom, and what His wisdom is like. And he says, God's wisdom does not produce in you selfish ambition and jealousy like is common among many of the Christians that he was speaking to. They were warring and arguing with one another. And he says, no, that's not the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God that you prayed for is this. This is how you recognize it. When you know you have the wisdom of God when it is pure, this is James 3 and verse 17, when it's pure, when it's peaceful, when it's gentle and meek, when it is reasonable, when it is merciful, when it is fruitful, when it is impartial, when it is sincere. I encourage you tonight, have you turned to God for wisdom to have all joy in times of trial? I hope that you have. I hope that you'll think about these things more and read about them. And I think this has been a great encouragement to me. And I know that I need to pray more, more about it to seek out God's wisdom in these matters. Whatever your needs are tonight, if we can pray with you and encourage you, and I know that there are some going through hard times and trials. Um, and I know that we, we face temptations, if not daily, every day. Or We come across those things we need to encourage one another. We want to encourage you tonight. If you need to obey the gospel and put on Christ in baptism, do it. Let's sing together.